Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hey guys, don't forget the Box of Oddities premium channel is available now and for a limited time, you can get the first 30 days for free. Go to the Himalaya app and use promo code ODD while you're signing up for the premium channel. And for 30 glorious days, you can get the bonuses that are part of being one of the Order of the Freaks. Ad-free episodes. Bonus episodes. 24-hour early access to episodes. Chitty chatting with us. In the super secret Order of Freaks chat room. Again, download the Himalaya app and use promo code ODD when you subscribe. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Okay. What? What? Oh, I don't know. Hey, what's what's with your jewelry? Why why are you I have jewelry. You, yeah, I know you have jewelry. You, you just never wear jewelry and now you're willing why are you wearing jewelry today? Well, I you know, I just figured I haven't washed my hair in 4 days. I could put a bracelet on. That's that's actually a good hygiene strategy. Um <laughs> understandable We've been extremely busy mm. trying to uh, do a bunch of things. I all, bought a planner. All at the same time. You bought a planner. It has stickers. Uh, we're actually trying to block out and mark up and plan for the upcoming Halloween tour, which by the way, Halloween is not that far away. It is not that far away. And we're going to be doing our second annual Halloween special. Oh, we can say that now. Why not? Well, no, I'm saying we can. Because it is the second annual. Yes. Yes. It's just weird that we're doing anything for the second time. That is true. And we're going to do what we did last year, which is uh, have you send in your encounters with uh, unusual or paranormal type activities ghost stories it could also be like creepy real life stories it doesn't have to be like made up ghost stories no no we don't want made up ghost stories we want real stories i know i'm saying that we want real stories too in addition to the ghost stories yeah just uh record it on your phone tell the story record it on the phone and send it to us curator at the box of oddities.com this is always so much fun and we love hearing your stories Our second annual Halloween special. It's going to be so much fun. So what you got for me? Today, I want to talk about something that, uh, well, I'm just going to get into it. Animal mummification. Okay. All right. All right. I really don't know anything about this. 
And so here, let's learn together, shall we? The practice of uh, mummifying animals became very widespread in the first millennium BC. It was an enormous part of uh, Egyptian culture, not only in their role as uh, food and pets, but the, the mummification was used for religious reasons as well. Animals were a big deal in Egypt. And uh, they had kind of a different relationship than than we understand the relationship with animals. I've seen photos of mummified cats from from Egypt. Mm-hmm. Cats were huge, and 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 I guess it was because it kept the rodent population down in their uh, in their grain supplies. That's not it. I mean, there were a lot of reasons that animals were were a big part of the culture. Um, some pets were so well loved and cared for and enmeshed with the family that they would be buried alongside their deceased owners or other animals that held special importance to the humans around them uh, would be uh, mummified. Uh, Some mummified animals were intended as food offerings to humans in the afterlife. Many others were created to serve as as sacred offerings to the gods who in ancient Egypt often took the form of animals, including cats and cows and falcons, uh, frogs, baboons, vultures, among many others. So they would mummify, in many cases, an animal with the idea that it would be food for the soul of the deceased person. That's right. That would suck. You die, you go to the other side, and then you just get like a mummified cat to eat. Now, would it be like, like spiritual beef jerky? That seems right. Mm. Yeah. Be like a ghostly Slim Jim. Mm-hmm. What else could it be like? I can't think of anything else. <laughs> Move along. There's nothing to see here. Animal mummified. Oh, wait. A poultry geist. Ah! Damn it. I wish I'd thought of that faster. No, that was good. So animals mummified for uh, the offerings to the gods were available for purchase or barter at sacred sites. So you could go to make your pilgrimage to where you'd uh, pray or uh, make your offerings to the gods. And you could actually just buy animals slash mummified animals right there kind of from vendors in front of the temples. So they were already prepared. In most cases, yes. I don't know if you could get like table side mummified animals like you can like guacamole. I don't know. But it was big business, basically. And it was such a popular practice that it exploded. I mean, there were animal mummification vendors everywhere. It's like an ancient Egyptian franchise opportunity. That's right. You could have a mummified cat cart or a Mm. TCBY. Uh Wealthier pilgrims could also splurge on elaborate coffins shaped as the creature to hold the mummy. And uh, ancient Egyptians probably believed that that represented the soul of the god that they were offering it to. So, yeah, they were like little animal sarcophaguses. Exactly. And some, uh, you know, we still have in museums and are absolutely beautiful and perfect and amazing. And I need to see all of them Mm -hmm. right now. Animals were very highly respected. And... uh, 
it's not known that any other culture has ever had this kind of tie with animals as the Egyptians did. And they were very influential in all different aspects of life. Um, nor has any other culture depicted animals as much as the Egyptians did. They they were so much a part of their lives that artwork and writings contained animal references. It's estimated that two in every five Egyptian hieroglyph relates to an animal. Two in every five. Mm-hmm. Egyptians believed that animals were crucial to both physical and spiritual survival. So the physical survival because they were a major source of food and to spiritual survival based on how well a person treated animals during their time on Earth, which I think is a great way to move forward as a society. Like if we could all just decide that what kind of person you are is based solely on how you treat animals, I could buy into that. (laughs) I think you do that already. I do, 100%, yes. The distinguishing factor between the process of non-human and human mummification is when the two types were mummified. Because, you know, you'd think, all right, Egyptians mummified people, Egyptians mummified animals. That's just, they must have always done this at the same time. I mean, in my head, it's, you know, mummies are mummies. But that's not the case. Humans had been mummified consistently since the days of the early conquerors in Lower Egypt. So that was hundreds of years before the first non-human animals were mummified. Even the most sacred of animals such as the apis bulls, um, they were mummified in a different way. So in addition to them being mummified much later in history, they also, the the process was different. The large scale of the, let's say, production of animal mummies also kept the, so you know how like when you make a lot of so you remember the Santa Claus movie, right? When they sure. started to try to mass produce the toys. The one with John then, Lithgow. That's right. And Dudley Moore. And Dudley Moore. Yeah. And then the toys started falling apart because you can't mass produce in, in Santa's workshop and expect the same kind of quality. No. Uh, right. It's like that. It's like cloning too. Right. Like you know? multiplicity. Like multiplicity. Peach Steve. <laughs> What I'm getting at, I guess, is that there wasn't the same kind of care put into the animal mummification. Oh, and the fact that sometimes animals weren't inside the mummies. What? Yeah, so... They weren't mummies then, were they? You could, in theory, throw up a animal mummy that didn't actually contain an animal, but if its production was very near to a lot of animals, then it kind of sort of carried the same oomph. So you could essentially make a a stuffed animal replica mm-hmm. of a cat, mm-hmm. wrap it in bandages and call it a mummy. Yeah. That would make a great concept. Like if you combine that idea with a Build-A-Bear workshop, Aww. you know, build a mummy, that'd be kind of fun. That would be fun. Yeah. Or kind of like we were talking about last time with the kinder egg thing. It's like, do you get a skeletal remains of an animal or no? Oh, it's a surprise inside. Let's open it up and see. So Egyptians treated animals with great respect. They regarded them uh, both as we talked about with the domestic pets and the representation of gods. And there were some mummies, animal mummies, that were very complex 
and the treatment of the animal was very complex. You know, same same deal with the internal organs taken out and the resin used and the flowers jammed up in and all that business. Some, not so much. At the Egyptian temple and cemetery Kalm Ambu in Egypt, archaeologists discovered more than 300 crocodile mummies. All in one place? Yeah. So like stacked up like cordwood? I don't know exactly how they were organized. Ah. However, uh, the crocodile was revered in Egypt for its strength and its association with the Nile and thus fertility. So the Kalm Ambu temple was the worship site of both the falcon god and the crocodile god. And so, therefore, people would come to pay their respects. They would come to honor the crocodile god and bring him a crocodile mummy. These 300 crocodiles that are in one place, was there any indication that they were all mummified at the same time? Mm. or was- The understanding is that, that they were, over time, given... Okay. Individually. Now, did each animal have its own repository? I don't think Crocodiles so. here, kitty cats there. Oh, oh, interesting. Interesting thought. I don't know. Hmm. Um, I do know that there were mass pits where they found many, 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 I many, see. many cats and many, 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 many. But I don't know if they intermingled. I think because they were representations of the gods they would have been separate. That makes sense. I mean, I don't see any reason that you couldn't give like Anubis a crocodile or whatever, uh, but I don't think that that was generally the way. In the largest study of its kind, researchers at the Manchester Museum and the University of Manchester used x-rays and CT scans to examine more than 800 ancient Egyptian animal mummies many of which are now housed in British museums. The animals ranged from birds to cats to crocodiles and lots of others. And about a third of the mummies contained well-preserved remains of complete animals. Uh, Researchers found that only partial remains, if any remains, were found inside another third. Now, do we know for a fact that that was an accepted practice, that uh, they they could make a fake mummy and wrap it up and sell it? Or is this an indication of some sort of ancient Egyptian mummification fraud? Aha. It is not believed to be fraud. Um, As I said, about a third were chock full of animal bits. Uh, A third were partially filled with animals. So maybe like a skull or some major bones or whatever. And then a third of them had no animal bits at at all. They were filled with mud, sticks, eggshells, sometimes feathers. But it's understood, or at least the current theory is that it was understood that these were produced in and amongst animals and they carried the spirit of animals. I see. And that it wasn't fraudulent that people knew what they were buying. Okay. Like I said, there were vendors outside. So they may have had like a hierarchy of vendors. Like here, if you don't have all kinds of... Badger spleens, wolf nipple chips. <laughs> you may have had your options. I see. And maybe the the, the chock full of bits uh, mummies were a little more valuable. A little more expensive. Exactly. Okay. But they're still learning about it. It was kind of a surprise to find that only a third of animal mummies actually contain animals. Yeah, that is, that's shocking. In one site alone, 
uh, researchers found 8 million preserved dogs. Wow. Additionally, archaeologists discovered around 30 animal mummy catacombs with millions of mummies piled from top to bottom. Over what kind of a time period are we talking here? So scholars estimate that the number of Egyptian animal mummies was more than 70 million. Good God. And that ranged from about 380 BC to approximately 400 AD. Okay. About 70 million animal mummies. Wow. Mm, Considering I've never seen one. 70 million in less than a thousand years. Mm. That's a full-time job. Yeah. Well, it was a lot of people's full-time jobs. Sure. The the hot dog carts out in front. Right. Did they have like artisans who would, uh, you know, you could you could watch them create these. Uh, like a their... caricature artist? Yes, exactly what I was thinking. Like if you went to some sort of ancient Egyptian equivalent of a carnival. Oh. You know, and instead of, you know, uh, have your, your caricature drawn, you could watch them stuff a beaver. I don't know. Have you ever watched somebody stuff a beaver? I mean, like, not in person. (laughs) And now, that thing in the middle. Today's thing in the middle was suggested by one of our freaks, Helen, who uh, I believe lives in the UK. She's one of the best. She certainly is. These are genuine clips from council complaint letters. And I'm thinking by reading these that council means like a homeowner association Or I would say like even a small town council. It almost looks like complaints to a landlord. Yeah. So with that in mind, number five, my bush is really overgrown round the front and my back passage has fungus growing in it. Number four, please send a man with the right tool to finish the job and satisfy my wife. (laughs) I do not think that means what he thinks it means. No. Number three, I want some repairs done to my cooker as it's backfired and burnt my knob off. Number two, our kitchen floor is damp. We have two children and would like a third. So please send someone round to do something about it. And number one, I want to complain about the farmer across the road. Every morning at 6 a.m., his cock wakes me up. And now it's getting too much for me to handle. Cockadoodle too. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I am nearing 40. I'm starting to get the the wrinkles and such, but I still I still have acne, which is not cool, mother nature. But something I'm super excited about is Proactive MD. It's the next generation acne treatment system from Proactive. And no, it's not just for your nearing 40 podcasters. It can be for you or for your kids. School's coming back, and I don't know about your kids, but when I was young and I would get edgy and nervous, it would cause breakouts and going back to school can be edgy and nervous wouldn't it be great to get your kids clear skin confident for the new school year and the confidence that comes from having clear skin is pretty amazing america's number one acne brand proactive has helped fight acne for 25 years so they know what they're doing and they've stepped up their game with proactive md did they send us some yes (laughs) am i excited about using it yes 
It's got a bunch of stuff in it that I can't pronounce. Like Adapalene. Sounds like a kind of horse. It's the newest acne-fighting innovation made available to over-the-counter consumers in over 30 years. It's a dermatologist-recommended topical retinoid. It's used in treatment of mild to moderate acne and is the first prescription-strength retinoid that is FDA-approved for use in treating acne without a prescription. But I think my very favorite feature is that it has a built-in SPF 30 because nothing matters if your face melts off. And right now, for Box of Oddities listeners, there's a back-to-school offer from Proactive you cannot get anywhere else with your Proactive MD order. You'll also receive a free Proactive's on-the-go bag, which features their T-Zone oil absorber, body acne wipes, and green tea moisturizer. That is close to a $100 value. Plus free shipping with a 60-day money-back guarantee. Go to Proactive.com slash box to get this special offer. Proactive.com slash box and make your kids first day at school their best day ever. So we talked about Embark and the incredible DNA testing that they can do for your dog. And we were so excited to do this with Willie. And we just got the results back. (laughs) This is amazing. It's like Christmas. We were really impressed by the first contact that we got back from Embark. We got a personalized letter that said, hey, before you get your results, we want to let you know that Willie is at risk for this thing. It was personal. I was invited to reach out if I had any further questions. And then the next day we got the rest of his results. So it was like a heads up, like a, hey, we know this might be a concern for you. I thought it was really classy the way they did it. He's fine, by the way. This will help us get him the right treatment he needs. And that's the thing about the health test that you can choose to go with when you order your Embark package. They screen for 170 potential genetic defects. We also found out that his wolfiness level is 1.2%. Yeah, he's way wolfy, you guys. And then they gave us lists of close relatives of his, probably as close as brothers and sisters and most of them for some reason are in california which is just delightful it was delightful and you can see profiles of pups that could be willie's siblings some of them look like they definitely are including wally meatballs what was the other one waffles mcgrew no it was a waffles kruger waffles kruger (laughs) what a great name So Embark, you should do it if you've got a dog. It's just fun and interesting, and it could be really helpful in providing the best care for your dog. It's the only research-grade dog DNA test on the market. It analyzes 100 times more genetic information than any other product. It's in conjunction with Cornell University, so this is for real. Whether your pet is a mixed breed or purebred, they're not immune to certain diseases and health issues, but the sooner you know, the sooner you can find help or reduce pain. As a box of oddities, listener embark has an exclusive summer offer you can't get anywhere else go to embarkvet.com use promo code box and save 15 off your dog dna test kit we ordered one for banjo as well discover your dog more than fur deep visit embarkvet.com and use promo code box to save you're listening to the box of oddities the question is why? We got a message on Instagram that I wanted to share. Oh. Hey, Kat and Jethro, just wanted to reach out and say your podcast has grown to be one of my favorites. I fell pregnant in October of 2018. Wait, wait she fell pregnant? Yep. And listened to you guys my entire pregnancy while driving home from work. After my son was born in June, I've obviously continued listening. What's interesting is as soon as I start playing your voices, it soothes him right to sleep. 
It's apparent he was listening before he was born and continues to enjoy it now like I do. Thanks for being with me through my pregnancy and I look forward to the day my son will actually stay awake to listen with me. Kayla and Rowan. Oh, that is adorable. It really is. Wow. It's probably the only time I've ever soothed a baby. Probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that she said she she fell pregnant. It's it's like saying, I came down with a baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. Thanks so much. So I found this story. This you know how I love turn of the century or Victorian into Edwardian period of time, uh, especially explorers, mm. the idea of like some British explorer donning his pith helmet, dashing about the globe of course, to discover things. Also pioneers of new technology who are discovering different areas and different methods of travel. Here's a good example. I found this on Genealogy Bank. That sounds like a sperm donor's place. It does, doesn't it? On July 6, 1919, a huge British dirigible, the R-34, touched down at Roosevelt Field on Long Island. It spent uh, four and a half days making history, completing the very first successful crossing of the Atlantic Ocean by a lighter-than-air aircraft. Ooh. 1919. It was only the second time any aircraft had crossed the Atlantic. Two weeks prior to that, a couple of British pilots named Alcock and Brown. Glorious. I want a pub. I want to own a pub and call it Alcott and Brown. Yeah, that's a great pub name. And all of our drinks, like our mixed drinks, are aviation-themed names. And the food. Sandwiches, like you could have Lindberger and cheese. I'm sorry. I don't know what's wrong with me today. Anyway, Alcock and Brown made the first nonstop transatlantic flight using a World War I bomber from Newfoundland, Canada to Ireland. Wow. But the R-34's success uh, proved at that point that these huge hydrogen-filled airships, their time had arrived. It ushered in a new era of passenger air travel uh, that was very popular right up until about the time the Hindenburg exploded, Oh, which was May 6th, 1937. So you had 20 years, essentially, of very successful lighter-than-air dirigible uh, mass transit. Okay. But the R-34 nearly had its own disaster on that very first historic flight when it crossed the Atlantic. It was 643 feet long. It was uh, nicknamed Tiny by her crew. <laughs> sure. It had flown uh, the first 3,690 miles from Scotland to Newfoundland. No incident whatsoever. They left on the 2nd of July, 1919, safely crossed the Atlantic, it had five 275-horsepower engines, but it was the last couple thousand miles from Newfoundland down to Long Island, which uh, pretty much, it almost did them in. First, they flew into two powerful uh, lightning storms. Not a place you want to be. A big bag full of hydrogen. Right. No, thank you. The storm kind of, it tossed the dirigible about as though it was uh, a, it caught in a hurricane. It seemed like it was to them. Then dense fog completely destroyed any visibility they had. And of mm. course, at that point, they were just relying on their eyes. They they had no radar, obviously, or any type of um, aviation equipment. These were the first guys to do this. Right. They had strong headwinds. That was slowing them down. The crew watched nervously as their gas supply was dwindling because of the, the headwinds and the storms. They were sure. running out of gas. They were almost on empty. The commander, his name was uh, Major George Herbert Scott. He and his crew had barely slept for days. 
And the trauma of the uh, electrical storm really put them on edge, as, as one would imagine. At 11 o'clock in the morning on the 5th of July, Scott sent a message almost casually mentioning the airship's fuel getting low. Five minutes later, another officer on board sent a follow-up message to the U.S. Navy Department asking if warships could be sent if required. Less than three hours later, another message was sent, tersely requesting that uh, warships meet the dirigible at the earliest possible moment. The crew exhausted. The airship was battered. It limped into the home stretch, and the Northeast was just electrified with this event. As you could imagine, I mean, they, they were telegraphing the news. Right. Everybody was following it. It was much like the moon landing was 50 years later. Sky vodka would be in one of the drinks. Ah, okay, perfect. I, it took me that long. Wow. <laughs> Wireless operators uh, kept very close tabs on what was happening. Observers flocked along the shoreline, straining their eyes. They were strained, the eyes. They were. So as the hours dragged by, tensions increased. Disaster seemed ready to happen at any moment. At the end, in the end, all the precautions proved unnecessary. The R-34 safely made it to its uh, original destination, Roosevelt Field, completing the 5,634-mile voyage in 108 hours, 12 minutes. Wow. When the airship finally landed, it had uh, less than 90 minutes of gasoline left in its tanks. That's closer than I would feel comfortable with. Thank you. The waiting American crew had no experience, of course, in landing a giant dirigible at the field. So after all of this, in order to safely dock this giant dirigible... One of the British officers parachuted out of the R-34, landed safely, and then helped ground the, uh, the wow. blimp. Yeah. So, I mean, I what I'm picturing is just long ropes, kind of like a, that you'd have from yeah. a air, hot air balloon. That's basically what they did. And they just kind of tied her up? Yep. More or less. I'm going to vote no on this form of travel. Here's the headline from the Baltimore American at the time. Big blimp. <laughs> you know I have to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Big blimp lands at original goal after hard fight. Could have gone only 90 minutes longer. Crew exhausted. Return trip to begin within 48 hours. Most exciting incidents of the trip occurred when the giant dirigible ran into two electrical storms. That was one headline. They had such they huge... really he- did. Yeah, their they, headlines were enormous. Concise, guys. Concise. Concisity? Is that a term? Is that a word? (laughs) I don't even know, but they didn't have it. Now, history generally accepts that this was not only an amazing feat, Mm -hmm. but was indeed the first time a dirigible crossed the Atlantic nonstop. However, in April of 1844, a headline in a New York newspaper says, Astounding news by Express... (laughs) Via Norfolk, Atlantic crossed in three days. Signal triumph of Mr. Monk Mason's flying machine. There was a report in 1844 of somebody in a dirigible or some sort of hot air balloon crossing the Atlantic in 1844. It goes on to say, Arrival at Sullivan's Island near Charleston, South Carolina of Mr. Mason and Mr. Robert Holland, Mr. Henson, Mr. Harrison, Ainsworth, and four others in the steering balloon Victoria after a passage of 75 hours from land to land, full particulars of this voyage. What even is a steering balloon? I don't know. A balloon you can steer, I guess. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for the clarification. (laughs) 
The article continues, the great problem is at length solved. The air, as well as the earth and the ocean, have been subdued by science and will become a common and convenient highway for mankind. The Atlantic has been actually crossed in a balloon, and this too without difficulty, without any great apparent danger, with thorough control of the machine, and in the inconceivably brief period of 75 hours from shore to shore. By the energy of an agent at Charleston, South Carolina, we are enabled to be the first to furnish the public with a detailed account of the most extraordinary voyage which was performed between Saturday the 6th and Tuesday the 9th. And then it goes on to describe in great detail the balloon. Good, because I want to understand what this thing looks like. The balloon was described as an ellipsoid. Its length was 13 feet 6 inches. Its height was 6 feet 8 inches. It contained about 320 cubic feet of gas. So it was blimpy. Yeah, it was blimpy. It used pure hydrogen. It had a wooden framework and uh, a basket, a wicker basket, was suspended from that uh, framework. Then it goes into schematics and how it was built and blah, right, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. It also includes an amazing almost hourly journal of what took place, what happened. Oh, I love a captain's journal. It's a captain's journal. Regardless of the vessel. I love a captain's journal. Even if you're on a road trip to like a local freshies, I like your captain's journal. I want to be a part of it. Let me read you one brief excerpt. Please do. Because it's pages and pages. Will you do a voice? No, no. Okay. Not this time. Monday the 8th, Mr. Mason writes. I don't know what kind of voice I, I would do with that. I picture him as being a longing type fellow, kind of like a Noel Fielding living in the back room of the IT <laughs> office. Monday the 8th. <laughs> this morning, we had again some little trouble with the rod of the propeller, which must be entirely remodeled for fear of serious accident. And then he goes on to talk about how they fixed it. And, you know, I mean, it's it's a very detailed journal and it's it's it's. Certainly worth reading, and it's very, very interesting indeed. Why has this not been more widely discussed? Why is it that the 1919 journey is considered to be the first one and not this one that was in the press in 1844? Hmm. Why was this major achievement tossed aside in the dumpster of history? I'm guessing politics. No, it was a fraud. (gasps) It was a hoax. A hoax? In April 1844. A man walks into the offices of the New York Sun newspaper carrying a 5,000-word document that chronicled the sensational piece of news. Wait, was this Jules Verne? Had he just written a book and someone was confused? Nope. This man walks in. He presents this information. Now, the people involved in this alleged flight, Thomas Monk Mason, he was a uh, a famed aeronaut. He was known for his ballooning expertise. He had set records for distance. Okay. He was well known. One of his companions, William Samuel Henson, or alleged companions, the inventor of the first patented steam-powered airship, a famed novelist, was also claimed to have been aboard, and many other people who are real people. The only real problem with the amazing news article, which gave details accounts, detailed accounts of this vessel, was that it was an entire fabrication Everything from the vessel used that made the voyage to descriptions of the balloon's design, its propulsion system, the steering mechanism, the journal notes, everything was a fabrication perpetrated by the guy who dropped off the paperwork at the newspaper, Mm -hmm. Edgar Allan Poe. What? Poe was a hoaxer. 
So I wasn't that far off you with weren't. the Jules Verne. Yeah, you were very close. On the day of the article's publication, Poe stood on the steps of the Suns building in New York City, trying to tell the crowd that that it was a hoax. It was a joke, but nobody would listen. They were so excited about this. Nobody paid attention to him. He, la- he later wrote of the account in the uh, Columbia Spy of the scene following the publication of the Balloon News. Quote, on the morning, Saturday, of its announcement, the whole square surrounded the Sun Building was literally besieged, blocked up, ingress and egress being alike impossible from a period soon after sunrise until about 2 o'clock p.m. I never witnessed more intense excitement to get possession of a newspaper. As soon as the few first copies made their way onto the streets, they were bought up at almost any price from the newsboys, who had made a profitable speculation beyond doubt. I saw a half dollar given in one instance for a single paper, and a shilling was a frequent price. I tried in vain during the whole day to get possession of a copy. I never really pictured Poe as a jokester. Oh, yeah. Or as a hoaxster. He just, he he always impressed me as, you know, that morose guy that you see in the photograph of him. Solemn. Yeah. And, and morbid. Listen, but, but you apparently, can be morbid and also hilarious. Hoax, hoax major newspapers just for the hell of it. It, like, for instance, the uh, the chick on the new season of Great British Baking Show, a.k.a. the British Bake Off or whatever you want to call it. She's super goth and she loves cakes. <laughs> you can't pigeonhole people. That's true. As if I couldn't love Edgar Allan Poe anymore. I... And that's all I have for you today. Our website is the repository, which is the second time I've used that word today, for all the information regarding the Box of Oddities, whether it's uh, the live shows, whether it's uh, our merch, of course, premium channel, if you're not already a member, contact information, and so much more. TheBoxOfOddities.com. Send us your Halloween stories. Yes, and don't forget to do that. And maybe you'll be part of the Halloween special. Oh, the second annual Halloween special. Oh, I just got really excited about the Garfield Halloween special. I understand. That made me think of the Garfield Christmas special. Cat has a very deep emotional attachment to Garfield holiday specials. It's just he found the love letters in the attic. I know, I know, sweetie. I know. The Box of Oddities twice a week on your phone or listening device. We're guessing it's a phone, but who the hell knows? We look forward to seeing you on Thursday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. All right. Um, guys, that's my pillow. Do you throw up on your pillow? No, they're just laying all over it with their butts and their buttholes. You have a butthole pillow. You have a butthole pillow. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. 
The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.